Texas to the state of Mississippi. For underneath her borders, the devil draws no line. If you drag her muddy rivers, nameless bodies you will find. Oh, the fat trees of the forest have hit a thousand crimes. The calendar is lying when it reads the present time. Oh, here's to the land you've torn out the up north they just don't understand and they tremble in the shadows at the thunder of the clan oh the sweating of their souls can wash the blood from off their hands for they smile and shrug their shoulders at the murder of a man All the rudiments of hatred are present everywhere And every single classroom is a factory of despair And there's nobody learning such a foreign word as Cops of Mississippi. They're chewing their tobacco as they lock the prison door. And their bellies bounce inside them when they knock you to the floor. No, they don't like taking prisoners in their private little wars. And behind their broken badges, there are murderers and And no one hears the sounds 
And the speeches of the governor are the ravings of a Congressmen will gather in a circus of delay While the Constitution's drowning in an ocean of decay Unwed mothers should be sterilized, I've even heard them say Yes, corruption can be classic in the Mississippi way Oh, here's to the land churches of Mississippi, where the cross once made of silver now is caked with rust, and the Sunday morning sermons pander to their lust. Oh, the fallen face of Jesus is choking in the dust, and heaven only knows in which God they can trust. You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Ron Turner. Ron is the uh, publisher and founder of Last Gasp. Um, is it Last Gasp Comics, or is Last Gasp Comics and Distribution? Um, oh, it's it's uh, many things. Last Gasp Comics, both spelled with a C and with an X, and um, Last Gasp Books and Comics, Last Gasp Comics and Books and Distribution. Um it's whatever you want to call us. We have many names, but it's mainly Last Gasp. The, the Last Gasp uh, last, Empire? Originally, it was Last Gasp Eco Funnies Company. So and, our first book was a uh, an ecologically oriented comic book. And that was 45 years ago. That was. Right. That was in 1970. Now, was that the first thing you had ever published? Um, pretty much. I had an underground newspaper in Fresno about 66, 67, called Flagrante Delicato. And then I'd done a little poetry book at San Francisco State while I was a grad student there. Now, what was your area of study? Um, because it, uh, reading bios, it says a lot about being grad student, but it doesn't actually say what you were taking. I did my grad student studies in experimental psychology and social action research. Okay. Was there a particular kind of focus that you were drawn towards? Well, like I, in? Oh No, no, no. This is not analytic. Okay. Um, this was experimental psychology. It has to do with designing and carrying out experiments. So you need a pretty good background in 
statistics and logic and how to fetter out the information that you need from subjects so that you can prove or disprove a hypothesis. Okay. So for one of my first ones I did while I was in grad school at Fresno State before I came to San Francisco State was a study on how to determine if there was going to be trouble in a community, a town. And I had a simple thing that listed all the various religions and another group that was all the various ethnic-oriented people from that area and had a way to go in and ask questions whereby people would would end up rank-ordering uh, their favorites or their least favorites of, let's say, Muslims, Christians, uh, Catholics, Buddhists, blah, that sort of thing. And then we get into ethnic groups like Arabs or uh, Japanese Americans or Mexican Americans or you know Anglo's or Okies or however we wanted to phrase it. Mm-hmm. And within a few people, I could get a pretty good sense of where the troubles were in a community and, you know, try to figure out a way to peddle that to city governments if they were even care about that sort of thing. But at the same time, you're also involved in uh, student movements, am I right? Or Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I was involved in a lot of movements. Uh, I was a card-carrying member of the United Farm Workers Union and um, did a lot of work with them. It was like uh, it wasn't hard to find a cause back in the uh, in the 60s mm-hmm. at all. I mean, there was, the, there was the Vietnam War, so there was huge anti-war groups. There was uh, civil rights. There was uh, we were having all kinds of leaders getting assassinated through the 60s, and there was uh, women's liberation. There was uh, virtually, I mean, you couldn't couldn't go around without bumping into like about 10 different causes that you, if you were thinking, you know, a warm-hearted mammal, you, you could find plenty of stuff to do back then to make your life and others better. It almost seems like your research was kind of a flip of that, like another side of the coin. Oh, yeah. I was certainly or... drawn into that. I, I'd, um, uh, can, you know, was very fortunate in that when I was getting... Turned, my brain turned on to this stuff and getting away from being an athlete and uh, uh, thinking I should be an engineer uh, and a complete Yahoo, the Peace Corps came along, and I was amongst the first thousand volunteers. I ended up in Sri Lanka for a couple of years. Oh, wow. So that, so that also, so when I got back to the United States in 64, things had changed a lot, and all these forces were happening. And that just, you know, I just went right along with it. And I worked for a while in, in uh, training Peace Corps volunteers. And then I got hired before I was out of college, while I was still an undergraduate, to teach classes at Fresno State. And I transferred up to San Francisco State. And while I was at San Francisco State, we had the longest strike in student history. And a job I had to support myself was doing studies in allergies and emotions at Kaiser Hospital. And that's where I got introduced to underground comics was at a New Year's Eve party. And was very stoned and read this comic book and realized that my, my remember that my early life was devoted heavily to comic books. They were the most 
exciting thing I could remember from my childhood. Mm-hmm. And so, but this was now given to me in a form of an adult entertainment that was comics. And I just went head over heels with this stuff. And uh, at some point, we were trying to raise money for the Berkeley Ecology Center because it was the first of its kind in America. And it had no money, of course. So we decided that the best thing to do would be to make an underground comic book using the best cartoonists with ecological themes and give it to the Ecology Center so they could sell it and make money for themselves. Well, by the time I got this project done, and I, we didn't have any money, so I had to like strong arm a bunch of drug dealers in Berkeley to give to the community. So we got the, the loans to get the thing going. And with that, and they got paid back, by the way. Um, <laughs> but also the uh, Ecology Center had changes, and so by the time we got the comic book out, which was like three or four months after we started, uh, people weren't sure what it was. So they, so when I w- came over, there were 20,000 comic books, and they said they took they took 10 copies for their bookstore. So I was left with 19,990 <laughs> copies, uh, and I had to figure out, stashed in my garage in Berkeley and tried to figure out what was I going to do with this. And thankfully, uh, President Nixon at that time canceled almost all the science money grants, so there were my job at Kaiser Hospital doing these studies, and I had to find something to do, so I was drawing unemployment, and I decided to run around the country and give out comics and see what was going on, and before long, Trina Robbins came to me and said she wanted to do a feminist comic book, and I just gave her the money immediately and said, let's do it. This is great. I wanted to talk to you about doing one, and you've already done it, so... So the first two comics dealt with ecology and women's liberation. And that's the It Ain't Me, Babe? That's It Ain't Me, Babe, yes. Now, I'm really interested in that because, like, a lot of uh, the contemporary work um, at that time for for Neuron Comics was a lot of, like, um, sex and drugs and violence, and um, I'm interested in the specific choice of doing uh, a women's lib comic um, because there wasn't very much like that out there. I know Trina was having a lot of challenges, um, really not even necessarily being as recognized uh, for her comics work as as contemporaries. Well, I, there's a lot of reasons for that. Not all sexist. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what, one thing is the uh, level of the artwork and the cartooning and and how you're supposed to deal with stuff propaganda. You know in propaganda forms. Uh, a lot of people who love comics love the fine art aspect and the illustration of particular themes that are more popular with the males. It's about 90% of the comics were bought and read by males at that time, uh, if not even more. It wasn't hard to see why women's stuff would be kind of hard to get in there because, for one thing, the people there, there weren't any real places to sell undergrounds at first. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the first, uh, Gary Arlington opened the first comic book store in America here in San Francisco. And he sold all kinds of comics, but also encouraged undergrounds. And, uh, after, you know, the, when you have like a comic book store, and the next year you have five comic book stores, and the next year you have 105, and the next year you have 1,005, you know, it grows like that. So most of the things we sold at the time were through head shops. 
is they hitched a ride along with the poster business. Mm-hmm. And the posters all were being sold through head shops, you know, into this alternative culture. Well, that alternative culture was there. Sure, women would go in to buy uh, earrings and pipes and bongs and whatnot, and maybe some T-shirts or what have you in the head shop. But uh, they really liked some people like like some of the early poster artists like Marty Tepper, who did, I remember a poster of her said like, Hallelujah for the pill, Hallelujah for the pill. You know, people don't understand also there's a big sexual revolution going on at that time. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, really brand new. And this is very liberating to not just to the men, but the women were very liberated by this and started to call their own shots about how and what was going on with them, and they didn't have to have a family in order to have sex, and, you know, so they had a lot more choices in mind. But along with the trying to get some of these guys to carry a book aimed at women, they didn't, still didn't quite see it. They'd rather have something about dope or hippies getting head, hit in the head by cops or, you know. It was kind of like a genre. It's like people all had to work through this kind of format of, cartooning, including the cartoonists, before they finally got it out of the system and then started focusing on real real events and real stories, you know, real narrative threads that made sense or humor uh, to people. The Freak Brothers were probably the, the biggest uh, success story of, of a lot of that because they, Gilbert Shelton combined these beautiful stories and humor with very funny cartooning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trina's work was, and a lot of the women who were with him were more about their personal struggles in their lives, which dealt with, you know, children, child raising, um, acceptance, the glass ceilings, the inequalities that women have, and, uh, you know, that, that sort of things. And, it, you know, remember we have a feminist movement, which uh, the women are mostly behind, but, you know, the men were going along kind of kicking and screaming until they figured it out. But it's not just gender politics, it's human politics. So, so but, you know, so back to the original question I about was, that, you know, yeah, there were, obviously these books sold uh, much less than some of the other ones, especially the ones that had more male-oriented sexual themes and male-oriented uh, behaviors. So... Um, but somebody had to get it done, and so I wanted to get it done. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, uh, kind of for yourself, um, because looking at, at a lot of the uh, early Last Cast releases, it is very, to me it seems very specific um, of what you want to see in the comics world. Um, you know, with, with It Ain't Me Babe, uh, and especially with uh, Justin Green's um Book, the Virgin Mary. Well, I Thank encourage you your I encourage your audience to go out and find a copy somewhere of Binky Brown meets the Holy Virgin Mary. Do you guys still have copies of the the big tablet size one? Have it in a um, slight book form with some other stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the thing is, the problem is that with comic books, unless they're put into a book form. Uh, there's no place to sell them. The, the comic book stores, which got up to twenty, thirty thousand or more stores, 
are now down to, you know, probably a few thousand, of which maybe only 300 or so would carry underground comics if they saw them. And so, you know, the big distributors don't carry them anymore. I, there's no, but there's Diamond is about the only distributor in ourselves. A couple of itty-bitty, teeny-weeny ones do, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. And bookstores will carry graphic novels as long as they're trade paperbacks or hardcovers, but they don't carry things with staples. No. I say that, and I'll take that back. There's like, we found about eight or ten stores now in San Francisco who can't keep these can't keep undergrounds in stock, and they brought them out again, you know, trying to display them face up because there's no spine. Bookstores don't like things that you can't read because of space limitations. They hate to put something face out. But wherever they go in, they still sell because of the you know, incredible level of the artwork and the themes, which you know still have meaning to people. And there's also something about the price of being able to buy a comic and try it out, which is less of a commitment when your budget's tight of having to necessarily go and buy like a $20, $30 graphic novel. Yeah, well, some of the comic books were starting to get it because of the way that they had to be made uh, on small runs and, you know, small print runs. So that towards the end of when we start, you know, we're making comic books, say like 20 years ago, most of the comics have become like four ninety five or five ninety five comics. Mm-hmm. Even some maybe a little bit six ninety five or so. And we try to start putting them on, on decent book stock paper, but they still were stapled. And we just never quite got the technology available to us to allow us to put things out at a reasonable price for the customers. You know, obviously things sell better, they're a little cheaper. But now, you know, for the price of a uh, cup of coffee or half a glass of wine, you can uh, get an underground very easily. We still have some that are, you know, two fifty, two dollars, three ninety-five. You know, they're there. There are hundreds of them, so they're still there. But they've been repackaged and brought out in a lot of forms, especially works of Robert Crumb and different cartoonists of the underground who made it well. But then there's folks that I know you guys have copies of things like uh, Corbin's underground work, like the Fanticores and the whatnot, where we'll never get reprinted again. And that's like the only way to get to that stuff. Yeah. Well, occasionally, um, Fantagraphics has lately been doing collections of everybody's stuff. We're, they recently did all the zaps. Mm-hmm. We, uh, I published. I took over all the zaps in the late seventies, publishing them from Printman. Printman had taken it over from Don Donahue at Apex Novels, and Charlie Plymel and Don Donahue had put together the first zap with Crumb. And so there's a tangle of stuff. Well, it came time to do the anthology. And I guess Fantagraphics had a, a better bid than we did for doing that, so they did it. But it's a, you know, it's a huge vol- bunch of volumes of the stuff, and it's gorgeous. But 
comes in a very heavy box, and it costs five hundred dollars. Yeah, I'm not going to spend five hundred dollars on. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wouldn't either. You know, except I got one because I asked for one. <laughs> <laughs> they and they sent me one. I, thank you, thank you, Fantagraphics. I appreciate that. Um. Now I want to kind of go back a bit to um, to Justin Green's book um, because that kind of sparked a thing for me about telling how everyone needs to kind of track down a copy and read it. When it came out, did you kind of have this realization of the importance of the book he was doing? Well, Justin was having a difficult time, and I knew it. And I really liked his stuff because I thought he was the most intellectual of all the cartoonists at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, but he was telling me about this, this thing he was trying to do to break through his neuroses. And he didn't know if he could finish this book. Well, I looked at what he had done, and I loved it because it was very autobiographical. And later on, Robert Crumb and Art Spiegelman both said if they... Justin hadn't drawn that and kind of like put the bar up higher for them, they would have never done autobiographical comics. But he, he kind of forced them by drawing in that way. It was kind of like a gauntlet out to other cartoonists, too. Mm -hmm. So um, we made a deal, and so I would come over and help pay part of his rent and bring him groceries sometimes while he finished it. And it was a gamble because there was no guarantee he could work through this bit of neuroses to complete the book, but I thought it was just great, and luckily he did, and he's gone on. There's been several stories after that that have continued on his life and what's gone on, and each time it's been kind of a big struggle to complete that, and it takes time. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so but just, I mean, this is like the, the first real close introspection of the psychosexual concomitants of religion and culture on an individual. It's just a classic. So many failed Catholics have just fallen in love with this. Justin's, um, in the book, he, he's Binky Brown. That comes from being, his nickname as a kid was Binky, and his last name was Green, so he simply changed it to Binky Brown. Had more alliteration. Mm-hmm. And uh, his mother was Catholic, his father was Jewish, and so there's a big religious conflicts going on within a family already. You throw Chicago into that mix, and uh, it was pretty curious. Um, so, you know, but he, I, but Justin was a very... Uh, bothered, he lived very close to Mission Dolores, ancient mission here in San Francisco. And he had to turn his desk a certain way, so he thought that the rays that came out of the top of the Mission Dolores, from the big cross up there, wouldn't hit him or, or get into his art. And he left that space, and Art Spiegelman moved into that space. And I remember, because uh, I was helping them all move in and out, uh, Justin showing Art how to maneuver his desk so it would be out of the line of the rays from Mission Dolores. 
and as you said, it's still is a struggle for him, kind of working through this. Well, um, I think there's a lot of things. Justin is an amazing musician. He's a fabulous free thinker, and he just continues to draw stuff. And he's a, you know he made a wonderful book uh, called The Sign Game because he's a uh, magnificent pro professional sign painter. And he did a book that should be taught in every business school in the country about the economics of sign painting and what to do and what not to do in the business. And every time I go, and sometimes there's art shows of sign painter art. They're rare, but they do happen. And I'll always bring along a couple of copies of that for people, and they go nuts because they say, I've got that book. It's great. It's just, it's just a very insightful uh, thing to me. You think by my comments, you might think this guy's really a kook, but he's not. He's, he just is more able to explain some of the things that bother him. And you know, we all have our own personal beliefs that we have to deal with. And that's one of the gl- glorious things about cartooning is it allows a person to put it down on paper and show you and explain what's going on in their head. Where uh, a movie director does this, but it takes almost an army of people to get something on the screen. They gotta hire actors, they gotta hire script writers, they gotta hire set designers, they gotta film people film it, edit it, you know, copy it, put it, distribute it. Cartoonists does all this by themselves. They're they're really bright people. Very clever. Yeah, and I and I don't and I, and I agree. Like I don't wanna say he's he's a kook. Like uh, I've talked to Justin before and had really good conversations. Um, and one of the things that really strikes me is that he has this amazing classical knowledge as well that really informs his work. When I was doing Slow Death number one, Mm -hmm. I had all kinds of good stories as I went to each of the cartoonists to lay on them and say, maybe you could use this for your, your cartooning. Every one of them had already had something in mind. I hadn't even talked to them. They already had something in mind. Mm-hmm. And they all did their own thing. I mean, you know, they're they're very bright people. You know, mm-hmm. Of all the arts, I think they're the most creative. Um, now, what were some of the other things in the in the seventies that particularly stood out? Um, because it's interesting that you're keeping going um, with publishing this work as the the head shops were. Um, kind of shuttering down or not, not necessarily uh, caring as much of the undergrounds anymore. And I'm wondering about that balance of being able to try and continue putting out this stuff and kind of really picking and choosing what you want to get out there. Well, there's no question if somebody likes something like... I remember we, uh, we did a... Well, I always like to do kind of like uh, somewhat shocking and innovative things like we did a comic called uh, Amputee Love. And um, we used a Canadian artist, uh, Brent Boats, mm-hmm. to do the cover. And the story was about uh, two women who go across country in a convertible who are both amputees. And they have an amazing cross-country sexcapade in which they extol certain advantages of not having a heavy limb to lift up and move around when you're having sex. 
uh, and you think that might be exploited, except that uh, the people who wrote it, um, Renee and Rick Jensen, uh, drew it, um, were amputees. Well, Rick wasn't, but uh, Renee's wife was. She was a double amputee of her legs. Oh, wow. And um, so, but basically it was Renee and her girlfriend's sex life for 20 years collapsed down into a story that made sense. You wouldn't want to read something going on for like, well, three years passed, and then I had this kind of sex or something, you know, so you want to see it all together. Yeah. Well, um, the vindication of that book was when University of California Medical Center ordered 300 copies for their nursing department, the teaching hospital, and they wanted every nurse there to read about amputees because they had all these guys coming back, not just what was happening in the civilian United States through accidents and injuries, mm-hmm. but all the Vietnam War guys were coming back with all these missing limbs or paralysis or whatnot. And they wanted to, like, you know, they understood that this kind of book is very promotional for rehabilitation and self-esteem and whatnot. Yeah. And thinking that there's still a human being in the body there, not just a you know, chopped up piece of meat that's going to lay there forever. So that was that was good vindication when that happened. Were they Canadian, the, the writers, or... Pardon? Were they Canadian as well? Because I, I know Brent Boats. No, no, no. no. Okay. Rick drew comics and car. He did a lot of car comics down in the south early on. Can't remember exactly where Rene was from. But um, just being Canadian, I like to know. She used to do the amputee golf circuit. There's a whole circuit of that. Oh, oh wow. you learn so many things when you do a book like that. There was uh, I got uh, about 300 letters from people were mostly from fetish clubs who liked amputees, who also liked the book a lot. And I remember one guy flew out from Chicago, of all places, on this private jet, took a limousine to our warehouse, and, of course, he was coming in to buy these for his son, whose uh, wife had had an amputation or something like that, some bullshit. And the uh, it's hilarious. I said, sure, I'll sell you someone to be like, you know, I think it was the first $2 comic. And so I said, okay, so how many would you like? He says, I want to take three. So I had three copies. And this guy says, oh, I'm sorry, can you break this? And he's got his lowest bill. It was a $100 bill. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, you get these kind of, these totally cooked people who are into, you know, amputees. And, oh. Quite, so, quite lovely, some of the things you run into in this business. So what about the, the community feedback from the uh, Tales of the Leather Nun? Well, uh, Father Justin Time, I think, was the priest in that one. That was Dave Sheridan. He's, he was a great artist. He died way too young of cancer. Mm-hmm. And that was yeah, like... that, I think we still have some copies of that here. So... Sheridan also did the artwork on the Dealer McDope dealing game that we did. And he did a lot of work over at Ripoff Press. Some of his other comics were Mother's Oats comics. 
work with Fred Schreier, who was, um, they both were contributed to the ongoing Slow Death Bunnies. Wonderful artist. And uh, just, just had a theme. Everybody loved the Leather Nun. It was sort of uh, hard to go to a, uh, a fetish event these days without seeing a Leather Nun or two running around. But that was the first. First time it was like, put out there in a public forum for people to see and relate. So you always hope that this stuff hits the hinterland. you got some poor kid in some town who thinks they're nuts because nobody else seems to think anything about the craziness that they think or whatever, and you come into town with some weird stuff, and they say, ooh, I'm not alone. Wow, good. Is there anything from your own childhood that's kind of you remember things that have popped up that, like, you would love to see a kid come across? Well, if you're referring to child molesters, no. <laughs> <laughs> nope, not that. <laughs> I just mean, like, um, you know, really unique cultural things, like, you know, maybe you saw freaks or something like that. Uh, kind of hard to remember that stuff, but I remember one time a bunch of us were waiting for a bus at the bus stop. We lived about a mile out of Fresno, going down for a Saturday matinee, which I think was a dime. And there was a blind fellow on the bus bench waiting for the bus with us. And so here you are. And, of course, back in the days, there was no cell phones, no devices. You, people had to talk to each other or were compelled to when they were in closer proximity. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of curious about this guy with a red clip cane and dark glasses. And so we didn't talk to him. And so I think one of us said, oh, are you blind? Yes, and he was telling us. And we just couldn't quite get through our heads with blind meant. It was, uh, um, now, there's a lot of strange people. I remember there were down in a house near us, there was a guy who had gotten polio, and he was in an iron lung, and they were an extremely poor family. There were still a lot of privies around that part of Fresno. And uh, they put him out underneath the shade of a tree in the daytime and then haul this big heavy metal thing back in the house at night. And we talked to him. He wasn't a well-educated guy, but it was always kind of strange talking to somebody where this big whoosh, where it was like forcing his lungs to breathe in and out this iron lung. Wow. I wrote, a, I wrote a short story about how he died. Anyway, i got to find that now. Anyway, so... Uh, what did your comics appear in? Oh, I, I remember going to, uh, we lived near the fairgrounds, so I'd go to the, help put up the circuses, and I'd always find my way into the freak shows. I was fascinated with freaks. And my dad had movie theaters around. We were not very successful. We'd always, like, do a bankrupt in some town and have to move on to another town, open up another theater. So I got to see a lot of movies in my early years. Uh, I don't know. You know, things that... It's okay. I'm curious about your own comics making. Um, now, did you write and draw, or were you primarily just writing and getting other folks to draw? Your no, no. I, I do nothing, man. I don't draw, and uh, I write something last few years. I've been writing a few vignettes of weird things in my life. 
Mm -hmm. I might collect that into a book at some point. But uh, although people tell me that they enjoy what I write, uh, I've never really been a writer. I, I mean, I had a hard time in high school. I didn't discover I had a brain until I was in college. Uh, I had to take English class with the foreign students in college to get through. And it wasn't until I was almost out of college that I finally, you know, put my brain to it and went up and got in the honor societies then, once I figured it out. Just something clicked? Well, something clicked, yeah. I guess part of it was, you know, I really always thought I was just some sort of Yahoo that played, you know, did a lot, did very well in athletics and football, wrestling, whatnot. Didn't, uh, didn't, you know, I, I was the only, like, the first guy in, I had an uncle, I guess, went to college, but I had the rest of the whole family was the first one to go to college, so, you know, it's not our fort. It wasn't that the family was uh, stupid, it just wasn't educated. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, how Last Gasp has kind of changed over the years, um, and and kind of where that change has come from, um, going from publishing underground comics to now um, being one of the major publishers of um, counterculture, lowbrow. Uh, I don't. I hate using the term lowbrow because it doesn't really address like. I like the, that. Huh? I like that term. I like to be lowbrow. I just feel I like first, it, I remember the first time I saw a cartoon depiction of the highbrow, mediumbrow, and lowbrow in some magazine way, way, way back. And the lowbrow looked more like the Neanderthal. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, like, geez, those are my people. I've got a kind of a brow that sticks out a little bit. Those are my people. We got wiped out by the, <laughs> the other humanoids, bastards. So. This is our revenge, lowbrow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I say that because I just feel it kind of limits um, the scope of the work because there is so much uh, different To stuff. me, pop surrealism works pretty well. Yeah. But then you have that word pop, which is, I always have a hard time with that. It's like it should be something that's in a glass bottle that you drink, you know. I mean, that was pop. Still pop. Pop, yeah, pop. Yeah. Um, where was that shift of uh, veering into that type of work and carrying and publishing? Well, um, when the Vietnam War ended in 74, and the Vietnamese kicked their ass, mm -hmm. um, suddenly the bill came due. You can't haul metal and chemicals and high, big, flying, inefficient planes to dump them on the grounds to poison Asia for years and years and years and years without having a big bill for that. And the bill came due, and all of a sudden, the economy crashed and inflation went haywire. And I remember that was like, we've had many recessions, and that recession hit us really hard. Our sales were off 80% back about 74, 75 and we were really struggling. It came to the point where maybe it was time to 
fail, do something else. Mm-hmm. And if it's stuck in and managed to pay off everybody, this has happened several times during the course of the 45 years I've been doing this. And each time, you kind of come back with a slightly different thing. Around the same time as we kept trying to make find more places to sell, what came up was that, that the head shops were beginning to ask us for, well, this, comics are great. Do you got any books on growing dope? And the comic book stores were such that they like, this is great. Do you have any other kinds of ca- cartoon-oriented materials? And so I began to start to collect and buy from other people books that would on how to grow dope and how to Uh, get out of busts and how to different sort of more cartoon stuff that we didn't publish, but maybe something like uh, Gary Larson's stuff or different cartoon works. And so we started adding these things up and we discovered that, hey, bookstores like us because we have a different taste than they do. And we started selling them the notebooks into the bookstores and the cartoon books, sometimes into the head shops, not always. So we began to supplement what we were selling by buying other stuff. And then we got into head shop items. At one point, we had a whole set of, you know, a whole warehouse full of bongs and little scales and things. <laughs> and, then, and then I remember we had another firm called uh, Utech Laboratories. And the government was starting to spray poison on the marijuana. It's called Paraquat. And you couldn't tell it until you smoked it and got sick. And they thought, well, this is the way to stop them dope smokers is poison them all. And, of course, that was just outrageous, but that was what was happening. So uh, I had a friend who was a chemist, and we had this company called Utech. And we would buy laboratory equipment from all the major, like Fisher Labs and all these different places, so that you'd have really good test tubes and thermometers and whatnot. And we created a Paraquat test kit. So you could take your pot and test it and see if it was fouled or not. And we had a lot of other little goofy things we did as well. And you know, that went on for a while, and then, uh, you know, times changed, and we got out of that business and kept going you know, back. To, all this time, we keep publishing comics and doing a, getting more adventurous in publishing. Although from the very beginning, our, our first, you know, back in 1970, we published a little booklet uh, called uh, Invisible Air Pollution. So we were there, and we also did a, a, a book. I'd been involved in one of the first food conspiracies in Berkeley. So I published a little book called How the Hilligus Food Conspiracy is Run. And that, you know, that, that was pretty popular too, but I always thought that should be almost a free book, and I was unwilling to make it into a commercial thing. It was like nonsense on my part, I guess, but I felt it was more something that you should try to encourage people to put out. And, yeah, it's it's just sort of one thing's led to another. As the cartoonists got uh, 
branched off from cartooning and went more into like painting or back into the poster making. Mm-hmm. Like Robert Williams started getting you know getting up to six hundred bucks for a painting. You know? Then they went to twelve hundred, and then they went to a couple thousand. You know, and now he gets you know quarter half a million on his sculptures. He might get a million. Doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Crumb, same thing. You could pick up a piece of crumb for fifty bucks or hundred bucks way back when. Now a good sized piece, well rented, could cost you a hundred grand. I was at uh, someone's house and they had a, a crumb page that uh, they were given in lieu of royalties for something. And I'm like, you think you got a better deal than what you would have gotten for the royalties? Yeah, if he wants to sell it, let me know. Not online. <laughs> no, he he. It's it's a uh, it's a well prized item. <laughs> um, so what do you see for the future for Last Gas? It's been forty five years now. Um, you just uh, had San Francisco recognizing Ron Turner Day on uh, on the fifth of May. Well, I didn't get my picture in the paper. But the last two times we're for um, helping uh, do the strike at San Francisco State. And the last time I think I pictures in the paper was uh, for putting on what the New York Times called the most outrageous party <laughs> of the decade. What was that? Uh, the political consultant by the name of Jack Davis. He got Willie Brown, our former mayor, elected, and then he got, uh, uh, before that, he got uh, Frank Jordan, former police chief, elected. And his 50th birthday was coming up, so we did a grand party for him. We rented a bar that was in the Star Wars movie and had it docked with uh, off-duty San Francisco policemen, bartenders. Uh, and Jack likes Southwest Indian art, so I got uh, uh, a performance artist to perform for his party. And part of the performance was for the guy to um, be sodomized by a Jack Daniels bottle, and uh, then everybody have a drink out of the bottle. <laughs> have just about every supervisor, judge, um, elected official, whatnot, here in the city and around, and all the big star people that were trying to be in Jack's good graces, this party all witnessing this. Then they had a, um, uh, while he was like reading a condemnation of America because he was a Mescalero Apache, he had a pentagram carved in his back. And then a woman dressed up as Pocahontas, uh, mounting him and pissing all over his back. And then they collected the fluids and tried to pass that around for people to drink as well. So that was part of the evening's entertainment. And uh, so for about three days, everybody says it was the greatest party ever thrown in San Francisco. And then they said, wait a minute, this was horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was quite a brouhaha. So they, they had... News vans parked outside our warehouse here for days, and so we always had to send the employees out the back door 
and uh, sneak away. Were they waiting for you guys to do something outrageous? Oh, this is great. Uh, this is a wonderful time. It's had by all, as far as I could tell. <laughs> so pranks is a good thing. I mean, we just published a book on the San Francisco Cacophony Society. And anybody who's ever been to Burning Man, uh, the first Burning Man on the playa, uh, with 70 people, 69 members, which were members of the Cacophony Society. Uh, if you've ever had a flash mob, yeah, that was created by the Cacophony Society. If you've ever seen SantaCon in various cities around the world, that was created by the people, the Cacophony Society. So um, the introduction was by Chuck Palnick, who did Fight Club, mm -hmm. and he said he would never have done Fight Club if it hadn't been for a Cacophony Society encouraging him to do stuff like that. Wow. So we just did that one, and that, so it's about, you know, more kind of pranky, cultural things, like what, what can you do with its existence on Earth that makes it, it interesting and uh, informative and, um, you know, and challenging. So that's basically what Last Gas was going to continue to do, I think. We, we have a, a book coming up on uh, the Bear, uh, George Barris, who did the original Batman car, and about every other car before and after that ever has been made up into gorgeous forms of metal as, as an art form. We have a 500-page book of his stuff coming up. Uh, we just got a, our most latest book in was by Camille Rose Garcia. Uh, then we have, further on coming down here, we have a book that Warren Hinkle, who is a really, really close friend of Hunter Thompson, has put together. It has a 200-page introduction by Warren, and then it has basically 33 wonderful vignettes by some of Hunter's good pals, including Governor Jerry Brown and uh, Johnny nice. Depp, different folks. And it's called Who Killed Hunter Thompson? So that hopefully will be out by the end of the year. I'm getting the final fix-ups on that. And then we have another one on um, kind of a uh, underground art thing like a, you know, underground art of, in the United States, for the most part. Sorry, Canada. I'm sure you're in there, too, though. <laughs> we try. Oh, you should try. Canadians are the best. So, you guys, I did tell you how the Canadian alphabet goes, though. You probably already know this, right? A, B, A, C, A, B, A. A, C, A. Oh, I've, I've, I've heard my fair share of uh, Canada jokes. And in Canada, we have Newfoundland jokes. Oh, really? Tell me one. <laughs> oh, oh, by the by, I don't know if I can think of any right now. I, I don't want to have a dead cod end up on my front steps in the morning. Probably. Um. <laughs> but you said COD. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was terrible and wonderful. Um, thank you, Ron, for uh, chatting with me today.
Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, hopefully anybody that was interested in things that we have for sale or just to look at or be bothered with, uh, we're on Facebook. We've got a Last Gas blog, and you can find us at lastgas.com. And well, we'd love to hear from you all out there. I will have links posted with this on the, on the World Wide Web. Um, once again, I really appreciate it. Last Gasp is uh, one of the most important publishers in comics um, and distributors quietly um, putting out really important work. And I think just having uh, release, you know, Binky Brown. It's all due to very, very, very hardworking staff here. Mm -hmm. Stuck with it forever. So, and our contributors. You know, without them, we're nothing. And I also recommend folks, if you get the chance in Last Gasp, just have them on their parties to, to attend. There may not be Jack Daniels uh, coming out of someone's rectum, uh, but there are many amazing uh, underground comics to, to the, take a look through. The performance artist is Steve Labda, and his book we did was called Coyote Satan America. <laughs> I want to see that. Something. He uses a lot of uh, body fluids in his painting. Quite remarkable. That sounds uh, pretty incredible. Thank you so much, Ron. Thank you. Come back to 
I'm really in love to 